You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 656. Don't let small minds convince you that your dreams are too big. Anonymous. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. If you guys are looking for jobs in the film industry or need to hire talent, Backstage Crew is the leading career marketplace to find film jobs and hire talent of all kinds. Browse easily and apply to hundreds of open roles across production types and post a job to quickly find the skilled talent you need to bring your film or project to life. Find the next gig or your crew with Backstage Crew. Get started for free today at Backstage.com and you can post your first job for free using the code INDIE. 80. That's Indy 80. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur Method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, today on the show, we have million dollar screenwriter Diane Drake. Diane is the writer of films like Only You, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei, as well as What Women Want, the second highest grossing romantic comedy ever. And Diane has written a new book called Get Your Story Straight. And we're going to talk about her book, her, her trials and tribulations in the business, as well as getting down to the nitty gritty of what it's really like to be a Hollywood screenwriter. And spoiler alert, it's not always peaches and cream working as a screenwriter in Hollywood. So she really is very upfront and honest and really open about her experience for the last couple decades working in the business. And her story is mixed with extreme highs, like when she was paid a million dollars for Only You, to extreme lows. And we'll talk about a little bit about that as well. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Diane Drake. I'd like to welcome to the show, Diane Drake. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for asking me. It's my pleasure. It's been, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Before we even get started, I have to say how much I love your, your first uh, screenplay. The Only You. It it is, for for all those listening who don't know that movie, Only You is starting a very young 
and baby-faced yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. And uh, Marissa Tomei and Bonnie, Bonnie Hunt. Hunt. Yes, mm-hmm. as well. Oh, and Billy Zane, if I remember correctly, <laughs> yeah. is in that movie and as well. And Billy Zane, yes. And the reason I bring it up first is because it was it was during my video store days when I first saw that movie. And of course, I had a huge crush on Marissa Tomei because everybody of my generation has that crush uh, without question. So when that movie came out, I was just like, oh, my God. But it was honestly the first experience, the first time I actually fell in love with Italy because it was shot so beautifully. The director, uh, uh, Jewison, right? Yes, the director was Norman Jewison, and the cinematographer was Sven Nyqvist, who oh. was legendary. I mean, he did Ingmar Bergman's oh. movies, and oh. he'd done Woody Allen's movies. And I think the only reason he did this movie was because it was Italy. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of people who wanted to work on that movie because it was Italy. Um, yeah, it's a rough shoot. It's a rough shoot. It's a rough shoot. <laughs> you know, I tell you, I was no fool, but I'll tell you something about that. So so I, um, when I came up with the idea... I was very much in love with Italy. I'd been there once, mm-hmm. briefly, um, and I really loved it, and I wanted to go back. So it was sort of a vicarious, you know, fantasy of mine. Um, but the other thing was that I had realized that I felt at the time, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't think so, um, that you really hadn't seen Italy on the big screen in a while. Mm-hmm. And the only place you had seen it was in um, like indie movies, like Cinema Paradiso, or um, there was a lovely, lovely movie. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I love it called Enchanted April. Yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah. Oh, it's such a beautiful movie. Beautiful film. So, um, so, and I knew by virtue of the nature of the story that it had to go somewhere, right? And I didn't, you know, she had to take off. And I didn't want to go from L.A. to New York or whatever, right? I really wanted to go to Italy, so I'm like, all right, I'm going to send her to Italy. And in fact, I don't know if you remember, but <laughs> they travel all through Italy. And, and kind of late in the movie, they go to Positano. And I had never been to Positano. So I sent them to Positano because I wanted to go to Positano. <laughs> but the, but the one other little wrinkle of this is that when I was writing that script and I was down and out, I was unemployed, I had I – had, had one little tiny sale I'd gotten in the writer's guild. We can talk more about that if you want, but, um, but I was struggling and, um, a really close friend of mine who I, whose work I really respected a lot. And he was a script ahead of me and we'd both worked in development prior to this and we were both out of work. And, um, I just really, I trusted his judgment. And so I was kind of having problems with the script as one does. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he very sort of cockily said to me, you know, he's like, well, send it to me. I'll read it. We'll have brunch. I'll tell you, I'll give you my notes, you know, I'll help you fix it. Mm -hmm. So we did that and his notes were really good. I knew that I was so funny too, because I literally just pulled them out. I hadn't looked at them in a million years, but I knew it meant I was going to have to tear the script apart. And that would be difficult, but I knew it would make it better. So I was okay with that. But, but the other thing he said to me was, but don't set it in Italy. And I was like, Mm. why, why not set it in Italy? And he's like, because if you set it in Italy, it just becomes a movie about Italy. So, so there's a little lesson for you, you know, take what is useful for you Mm. and leave trust because I just felt like, no, you're wrong about that. To me, that was one of the great joys of it. Mm-hmm. certainly as writing it and I think it has been for people watching it and and I will tell you that movie's done really really well in DVD um and whatever I don't know if they stream it now but um I think a large part of the reason obviously Robert of course you know mm-hmm. come on 
but um, but but, also but, but, but also Robert was Robert circa 1994 is not Robert circa 2008 2018. No, he, he, was, he was a big star already. He was he was a star. No, was that before or after Chaplin? I think that was before. I was actually let me think about it for a minute. I think it was before. I think it was before Chaplin and before he had his his problems. His pro- uh, well, yeah, well, between us, he had yeah. some problems then. But here's I'm the sure. thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. In spite of that, he was extraordinarily professional, mm-hmm. extraordinarily kind. I can tell you uh, the, the sweetest story about him, if you want me to later, um, that to this day makes me kind of cry. I mean, he was lovely. He was lovely. He may have had his own demons at the time, but he, mm-hmm. he was amazing. And I think that's part of the reason there was so much goodwill for him, you know, oh, in Hollywood. Know, right? You know, because he's just such a gracious, kind gifted person yeah no no question i had the pleasure of meeting him once at sundance and he was just such a just a darling he was no reason to be nice to me i was just a a little you know guy just walking up like hey can i you know can i get a picture can i talk and he he was such a sweet man but i do love that movie and the magic between him and marissa were just wonderful in that film but before we go off on a tangent because we could talk about only you for the rest of this episode (laughs) um first and foremost how did you get into the business Okay, so it depends how far back you want to go, but um, basically, I'll try to make it briefish. I, um, when I got out of college, I had a degree in communications, visual arts, and it was kind of worthless, you know, in, in the marketplace. It wasn't worthless to me. <laughs> you know, I had no connections or anything. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll be practical because my BA is not real practical and I'll get an MBA because that's what everyone's doing. And I guess that seemed like a good idea. And I hated it with passion. And I remember sitting in my accounting class and thinking, if I survive this and and this is going to qualify me to do this for the rest of my life and I don't want to do this. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I quit, and uh, which was really hard because I'd been a pretty good student up to that point, and and you know it's like I'd taken out loans and everything, but it just wasn't for me. So I that was not in California; that was in Colorado. So I moved back to California, uh, and decided I would go to law school because that seemed practical. <laughs> but I thought, but I'll do it in California, and I'll do entertainment law, and that'll be kind of sort of cool, and it'll be practical too. And so I got a job in the legal department at um, what was then Columbia Pictures, and uh, and applied. And, um, I looked around and I saw how miserable a lot of the people in the legal department looked. And <laughs> meanwhile, I got into USC and I got on the waiting list for UCLA, but I didn't want to spend the money to go to USC. And I ultimately did not get into UCLA and I thought, oh, that's okay. I mean, I, I don't know that I want to do this anyway. And so that, that it was at that point that I first learned, cause I was working on the lot that there was such a job as being a reader. I didn't know that that job even existed when mm-hmm. I, you know, started. So I thought, well, I could do that, <laughs> you know, and um, and that's how I started. And I started as a reader and worked freelance as a reader and worked my way up, you know, to, did acquisitions for an independent company for a while. And then my last job before I started writing was I was a VP of creative affairs for um, director Sidney Pollack. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, at the time, you know, it was a really good sc- back sale era. 
<laughs> yes, it was. Um, and I can go into more about how I wound up leaving there. But basically, you know, I just kind of looked around and I thought, well, you know, that looks like a pretty good life. You know, like this writer was off on a cruise around South America. I mean, it seemed very glamorous, you know, because they were feature writers and they were at the top of their game. And so, you know, it was like, well, and here I was sitting in judgment on these people's work. But but having said that, to be a critic, <laughs> To write about writing is a lot easier than writing. Let me just mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. you know, so um, it is it is a different skill in a way. And I think the thing that I lacked and I, I wound up having a little talk with myself about it was confidence. Mm -hmm. And I think by that point, I had read an awful lot of scripts and I felt like I had a, a relatively good understanding of the process, at least intellectually. And I would read stuff that I thought, you know, not necessarily stuff that our company was working on, but, you know, just stuff around town that it's old or, you know, was getting heat or whatever. And I would think it wasn't that great, you know, and like, and, and these guys, and in most cases they were guys mm -hmm. did not know as much as I did. But then I had to realize, I mean, like, yeah, but they're doing it and you're not. Fair enough. Fair, yeah. fair enough. Well, can, can you talk a little bit about that time in the late 80s and early 90s, which was the script, uh, the spec script boom, yeah. which I mean, yeah. in today's world is just unheard of. I mean, yeah, there still are million dollar scripts and there are still spec scripts that get bought. But it, but people don't understand even I was even because I was I was just coming into the business going to film school, but you would read about obviously yeah. Shane Black kind of cracked right. open and Joe Esterhouse, those guys. Yeah. Just yeah. busted the door open for like two, three, four, five million dollar buys. Yeah, it got kind of out of control, to be honest. But I mean, it's sad to me that there was a time that to be original commanded a premium, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And now that's pretty much the last thing they want, you know. That particularly the studios. I mean, it's it's just not what it's about at this point. It's about intellectual property. It's about anything that's already been successful as something else. Um, and they're not in the business of making the sort of movies I used to write, you know, and I used to go see, to be honest, my favorite kind of movies, you know, the movies like Jim Brooks made, you know, those mm -hmm. kind of movies. Um, that's not what they do anymore. They don't want to spend 50 million to make 150 million. You know, they want to spend 300 million to make a billion. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, you know, and I mean, there's work to be had out there, but it's pretty much to work on that, to work on intellectual property. You know, you write an original so you can get a job writing something that's already been something else, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, you know, so I'm sure you know, and probably your listeners know, you know, there's kind of two businesses now. There's the studio model, which again is 300 million to make a billion franchise merchandising, you know, tentpole, mostly superheroes, right? <laughs> right. Handful of people like Judd Apatow who are sort of a brand unto themselves that can kind of get away with that little middle ground movie. Tyler Perry and those kind of guys. Yeah, yeah. There are, there's there's a handful. But those are franchise. You know what I mean? Like Tyler mm -hmm. Perry's it's franchise. I mean, Apatow, you could almost say it's franchise. It's not quite, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, but they're a brand. Let's put it that way. Um, Bloomhouse, uh, Bloomhouse, and things like that. I mean, when I when I wrote Only You, I mean, I had had I had sold I hadn't sold anything. I had written one script and. Um, it got me an agent, very small agent, and he got me one meeting and I got the job, which is miraculous to me in hindsight too, you know, just, it was just to write a little treatment. So, but it's 25 grand. It got me in the writer's guild at the time, got me insurance, bought me the year to write only you. Um, but, but so I was nobody is my point. Mm -hmm. And yet my agent and, and my agent was coming off a hot sale. He had just sold a script for like half a million dollars. So he was kind of 
kind of even though it was a smaller agency, he was kind of a name at that point. But still, Julia Roberts' agent wanted only you for her. Um, Demi Moore wanted it. I mean, you could not get to stars of equivalent caliber now if you were nobody, you know, mm -hmm. and get your script read in a day or two. That's how it used to be. That's how much, that's how big a market there was um, and how much of demand there was for original material. It's, so, um, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Times have changed. I'm so sorry to say, but, but, and this doesn't necessarily affect me, at least not yet, but TV, streaming. <laughs> well, Netflix, I mean, Netflix is now the 800 pound gorilla and he, and they're doing things that, you know, I mean, it's amazing. They came in and just completely have changed the game. They've changed the game. And so, you know, now there's Amazon. I just, I, I, Apple. I just, yeah, exactly. I just taught an advanced class for UCLA and a, a manager came in to speak who was lovely. And she was talking about Disney plus mm -hmm. and you know, how that there's going to be bad. And that's a lot of intellectual property too, but apparently they're looking to make some originals as well, which kind of shocked me. And in that 40, $50 million range, which kind of almost no one's doing, although somebody was telling me, well, Netflix is doing that too. Netflix is doing everything. But, um, well, you know. I was looking at, I, I still always remember that film that just came out this last Christmas, which was the Kurt Russell Santa Claus movie. Yeah, that's right. Wh which Santa was direct, yeah, yeah, Santa Claus, whatever, I forgot the name of it, but. I think it was Chronicles. I can't remember. Yeah, Chronicles of Santa Claus or whatever it was, but regardless, it, we'll see it every year for the rest of our lives now. Yeah. But <laughs> it was directed by Chris Columbus, and that was easily a $150 million film. Oh, to make it? Yeah. Oh, I there was a so? lot of visual effects in that. I it mean, it was. was a, a it, I mean, it's over a hundred. It's over a hundred, and you still got Kurt Russell, who's. I don't think it was. We should look it up because I, I don't think it was. But but, but, but regardless, know, it could have been released theatrically without question. It would have yeah, probably made yeah, two hundred fifty million. Yeah, it would have been in the olden days. I'll tell you something about a Christmas movie, though. I'll tell you yeah. something. I wrote a Christmas movie with a partner a few years ago, and because uh, I thought, you know, let me just do intellectual. <laughs> right like santa it, you know it's public domain it's intellectual property everybody knows the story so uh a partner and i we wrote like a, a santa claus origin story you know and basically like how he met mrs claus how the reindeer learned to fly yeah like cool. it's kind of fun right fun and i cool. like we haven't seen this in a long we haven't seen a, a new santa claus you know even friends who were in the business were like oh that's really fun you know and it was basically the idea that he started off as a con man and a cat burglar and that's why he was so good at breaking into places genius and so you've got this great character arc and, you know, you have fun with like how all these things came to be. So I thought that seemed pretty marketable. And um, I sent it to an agent who said, um, who I could tell between us had not even read it. Um, and I could tell it because it starts with Santa as a little kid, but it's only for like the first five or so pages. And then you cut to him as an adult, not as an old man, but as an adult. And he's like, well, you can't do Santa as a kid. And so I had to kind of be like not rude and saying, well, he's really not, you know, it's just the first few pages. And, you know, and then he said, and this was the critical thing. And this was a few years ago now. Um, but he said, well, you can't, you can't do a Santa Claus movie anyway, because they don't celebrate Christmas in China. Wow. 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 Really? Yeah. There you have it. That's the extent to which the money and the marketplace is dictating what gets made because when I was first in the business, global market, us was, you know, two thirds, oh, yeah. foreign was one third. Mm -hmm. And now that's reversed. Mm -hmm. Foreign is two thirds. Us is one third. And of that two thirds, a lot of that's China. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is action. Um, so, and I thought to myself, I thought, well, I guess that's why we haven't seen another Christmas movie on the big screen then since elf. I couldn't right. think of 
Dean Smith's album. You know how long ago that was? That was so, um, early 2000s, wasn't it? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I guess. Yeah, I mean, like- I'm sure if John Favreau wanted to make Elf 2, they would be happy to let him. But aside from that, I, I don't think we'll see it. And so it was so interesting to see that Christmas Chronicles thing. Uh-huh. And my partner and I even talked about it, about dusting ours off. But honestly, it, it needs more work than I like to call yeah, it. And if, and if we go down Christmas movies, then, uh, you know, the Disney Channel Hallmark has those things so so on lock on those low budget. Well, they do, but but getting back to what we were, how this, what kind of kicked this off was, you know, we had Flying Ranger and stuff. So that was the other thing was like, it couldn't be made cheaply, we mm-hmm. thought, mm-hmm. because you were going to have to have those visual effects. You were going to have to have, you know, it, it was not a cheap movie to make. Um, so yeah, that was kind of interesting. But it was funny too, because both my movies, only that have been released, only you know what we want, have been remade in China with Chinese stars. <laughs> and so I kind of felt like, but they like me in China. I mean, why can't they? <laughs> give it a shot? It's fascinating. I mean, fascinating the the way the marketplace has changed so much. And then such a kind of ignorant um, comment by that agent. It's like, oh, well, they don't celebrate Christmas in China. It, it, you could just, that's such a Hollywood LA thing it's to say. So- Marketing driven, right? Oh. But who knows? But here's the thing. Here's the reality. He's got his finger more in the marketplace than I do. He knows what buyers are looking for. One assumes. Now, obviously, again, nobody knows anything and all that. But sure. I mean, I, I, yeah, I did feel it was dismissive, and mm-hmm. I did feel that, like, you know, it was like really. And yet, when I stopped to think about it, I thought, well, and maybe that's why we haven't had another. Because it used to be like every few years you'd get a new Christmas movie. I mean, all those Tim yeah. Allen movies and yeah. Elf, yeah. you know. And we haven't seen it. We haven't seen a big family action comedy Christmas movie. That's why Christmas Chronicles Blew up. was a huge deal, I think. Yeah. You know, because and, and people, you know, um, Kurt Russell, people who used to go to those movies when they were younger and now they've got kids or grandkids or whatever, you know, and they remember him. And it was kind of genius casting that way. Yeah, and, then, and then Chris Columbus is no slouch as a director. Well, yeah, <laughs> the kind of movies he makes, right? But it's so interesting that, of course, it was not released theatrically. Like they didn't sell that theatrically. No, they could have easily. If that would have been released, they would have easily made a couple hundred million, two, three hundred million. Do you think so? See, I, I think, think well, so. you're right. Maybe you're right. But I think the prevailing wisdom was, you know, and that's why it was Netflix. And, well, and that, I don't think it costs as much as you think. I Although, think you might, you might be right. I, I think it's at least 80 because just to get Kurt Russell and Chris Chris out of bed, it's going to cost a couple bucks. Um, I, don't, I don't I don't know. We the will have to – after this interview – after it, this it, interview, it would be interesting to see. We should look that up. After this interview, I will I look it up. Search people on that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also said you work for Sidney Pollack, who is obviously a legendary director, and I'm a huge fan of not only him as an actor, as a director, but also him as an actor. Is yeah. you know him and Eyes Wide Shut. I love his stories with Stanley and all that kind of stuff. What was it like working for a legend like that? What did you learn from him? Um, gosh. Well, first of all, sadly, he is no longer with us, but um. Yes. He was um, difficult mm-hmm. and extremely demanding, um, but because he was extremely demanding of himself, you know, and and driven, you know, and and kind of brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. he really was one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, he could be very charming. He started as an actor, and he could be not very nice, you know. He could be really, really tough, but 
I learned so much working there. And I don't, I really don't think I would ever become a writer had I not worked there. You know, it was a combination of what I learned and also the fact that I felt like I'd reached the end of the road there and I couldn't, I'll get into that if you'd like. Um, it wasn't him, but someone else I was working with there just kind of made my life a living hell and I had to get out. And um, so I, you know, that, that sort of a gun was put to my head and it was like, well, you know, if you know so much, why don't you see what you can do? But, um, but it was great. I mean, to watch him work with writers and, and he was so articulate and he was so insightful and, um, you know, yeah, they don't really make them like that. He was no, great. No. He, they broke the mold with Sydney, without question. And um, and just to go back to only you for a second. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Say that again. I said he was a doctor, you know, like in Tootsie and Husbands and Wives, you know. And you know, he didn't want to be in Tootsie. He didn't want to play that part. Right. But that was Dustin Hoffman who insisted. <laughs> That's should have. He was great at it. And just and to. So and just to go back to only you for one second, that script was the first script you sold, and it was a million dollar buy, if I'm not mistaken. It was. What it was, was that like? Box. It was crazy. I mean, God, it it, it was a million dollars. It was a million dollars up front. It wasn't even like if we make the movie, you know. Uh -huh. It was it was a million dollars. Um, and like I said, I think largely because at that moment, at that little tiny window in time, we had Julia Roberts potentially interested and Demi Moore interested. Mm -hmm. um, and then Norman came on shortly thereafter. I think he came on after the deal was closed. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was just, again, it was a different time. There was a lot of competition for it. You know, the stars aligned in my favor. Um, and uh yeah, it was kind of surreal. And I remember I was so like just praying that I could sell it at all, that I could get like writer's guild minimum or something, you know, so that I could continue to be a writer. I mean, I could continue. I didn't know what else I was going to do at that point. Sure. I really didn't think I could go back to working in development. I just had kind of burned out on that. And I just thought, I mean, <laughs> um, so yeah, and it happened so fast, you know, because it, this, there's a saying in Hollywood, good news travels fast. And I think it's still largely true. Maybe not quite as true as it was then, but back in those days, it was like, you know, you get all this heat and, you know, things would happen or not. And um, so it was really like less than a week from the time it went out to closing that deal. Now, yeah. what is it? What is it like? Because I want, you know, writers listening you know, you get a million dollar deal, which obviously is a, a lottery ticket. I mean, it does not happen often. What happens to you on in your career afterwards? Like, I know it gives you a career, obviously, but what are the steps? Like, what are the meetings you're taking? What are the, the, the assignments you're picking up? So people understand, like, if I just so we can live vicariously through you, what it's like after a, a, a sale like that. Uh, well, learn from my mistakes. Um. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I um, I did some things right, and I did some things that probably I might have done better or differently. Um, so I obviously kind of came out of nowhere and and had a lot of meetings and had a lot of things thrown at me. Um, but, you know, I really was a new writer. I mean, it was my second script. And I'd written the first one while I was still working for Sydney, like at three in three months at night. It was a talking animal movie. Um, only you took me about a year. Right. So... Uh, you know, I, at that point, for better or worse, I felt like, well, I, I kind of want to work on stuff that I want to work on. You know what I mean? Like that sort of means something to me. 
So I probably, in hindsight, had I been totally mercenary, should have just stacked up assignments, should have just like taken whatever came my way and, you know, done the best I could and taken the money and run. Um, but <laughs> hopeless romantic idealist that I am, I just didn't really feel like I could do that. I didn't know where I would pull it from. You know, I didn't even know how I could do like a not a bad job on something if I didn't relate to it in some way. So there was actually only one project in that time. I took meetings for about a year. Uh, you know, I was, I actually went to Italy while the movie was, I worked on only you for a while and I was in Italy for a little while while I was shooting. And then I came back and, you know, I was doing the meeting thing and there was only one project that I really wanted. Um, and actually Meg Ryan was attached to it and, um, she had a deal at Fox and I didn't really have what they call a quote cause I hadn't worked on assignment. So I just had like, you know, well, I have a million dollar sale. So my agent asked for a lot of money, <laughs> uh, which was fine. Um, but they didn't want to pay it. And, and it was a movie pretty much starring all women, interestingly in hindsight and all the people involved were women. Like it was, it was, it was actually Rosanna Arquette. It was a story of hers and Meg was going to play Rosanna and Rosanna was going to play her own best friend. And it was complicated, but anyway, um, so we came down in price three times. Like we came in at a certain level and Fox came back really low. And then we came down and Fox came back really low. And then we came down and Fox came back really low. So three times they never came up a dime. And to me, what that meant was they're never going to make this movie. They don't want this movie. And maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm, I misread it. But that was my interpretation, that they were placating Meg. They weren't going to tell her no. She had a deal at the studio. But they they had no interest in making this. And because I had been so fortunate as to not only sell a script for a million dollars, but actually have it go into production, mm-hmm. I kind of thought, well, why do I want to sign on for something that I know they're not excited about to begin with, right? And that was when I walked away and thought, well, you know, you did okay last time writing your own idea, so why don't you come up with something else? Oh, the ego. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know, but here's what happened. So I gave, and, and if I could only do this now, if only. But at the time, I was younger then, I said, all right, you got a week to come up with something, and that was when I came up with What Women Want. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Wow. And that, and, and that great segue into what women want, which is uh, obviously was a huge hit with starring Mel Gibson, uh, pre Mel Gibson and uh, <laughs> yeah. Mel, Mel Gibson, yeah. pre Mel Gibson and, right. uh, and the lovely incomparable Helen Hunt, uh, yeah. who is amazing in the film. And I, I remember watching that film a thousand times. I love that movie. And, but there was a bit of drama with that movie. Wasn't there for you? There's a lot of drama with that movie that okay. I am still technically not at liberty to discuss. But let me just say, <laughs> it was very bittersweet. It, it was, was very bittersweet. It was very agonizing, honestly. Because you have the story credit. You have a story credit on that. I have a story credit, and I wrote the original script for that movie. And there is no way that should have happened. There is no yeah. way, by Writers Guild rules, uh-huh. that that should have happened. And that's all I'm going to say for now. But uh, that was a huge, huge um, battle in my life. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I always say to people, I'm really trying not to do this anymore, but I always say to people when I. But I'm going to say it anyway. 
<laughs> what? But I'm going to say it anyway. I don't mean no, to say this. Okay. But I, I say I will never get over it. And I will never get over it. But I have to start. I just have to tell myself I'm bigger than that, you know. But I, the reason it's particularly fresh right now is I just relived it all because it just got remade. Right. So I had to deal with the Writers Guild again, and I had to deal with the credit again, and I had to deal with what was done to me on that movie again. And what was done to me was, you know, brutal. It was not right. And I'm not the only writer in Hollywood to have had this experience. I know that. I did get paid. I got paid very well for my torture <laughs> and the movie got made, you know, yeah, and it, it was, was a huge hit and, hit. It. and all that's to the good. But, um, yeah, I have a few bones to pick with a few people, including the writer's guild about that movie. And, uh, you know, and if it makes you feel any better, I also had it on the show, uh, Paul Castro. I don't sure if you know who Paul Castro is. He used to, he, he taught over at the U, uh, UCLA uh, extension okay. program for almost 10 years as well. He wrote August rush. Okay. And he wrote the original screenplay and the original story, and he had the exact same thing happen to him. And he does, I mean, he did get the story credit, and he has a story credit, but another bigger, the producer brought in a bigger screenwriter's name, and then they, he wanted to take credit, and then there was a writer's guild battle, and it does happen. It does happen, you know, unless you are, uh, unless you are an 800-pound gorilla, you know, that's not happening. You know, that's the thing. I mean, after I sold only you, I, I didn't teach or anything. I didn't do the kind of thing I'm doing now, but every once in a while I get asked to speak somewhere, you know, and I'd always get the question like, how do you protect your material? And I would always say, listen, you know, I mean, obviously at the time I was in the guild, I had an agent, I had a lawyer, but still, you know, it's like, you can register your stuff with the guild. Even if you're not in the guild, it's like $25. You can register it with the U S copyright office. And my response was always, it's just easier for them to pay you than to steal it from you, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what women want happened to me. So yeah, it's uh, there's you know there's only so much you can do. And um, yeah, when you go up against when you go up against a studio, when you go up against bigger you know bigger name uh, you know like you know, for lack of a better term, like, you know, this doesn't happen to Aaron Sorkin or Shane Black, you know, you yeah, know, or Quentin Tarantino. One would hope not. Although I think, I mean, listen, read William Goldman. I mean, they all have their horror stories, even yeah. people at the very top, you know, it's just, it's just different leagues. But, um, yeah, I, I will say, I feel like, um, and I always have to like temper this, like, I've been very fortunate, you know, I was fortunate that it sold. I was fortunate that it got made. I was fortunate I got paid. I had a really good attorney. Um, not good enough as it turned out, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I really do fault, um, the writer's guild a lot on Love this that. and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not the first writer to do that and, oh, yeah. you know, they do their best, but, um, it's politics. It's politics. It too. is politics. It's it politics. It's, that's just the reality, you it, know, it, and I'm glad the guild exists and I appreciate, you know, the residuals and all that. And, but um, yeah, they're they're not immune. They're not immune. No, it's politics, and I think that's something that they don't teach in in film schools and stuff. They don't understand. I mean, new screenwriters coming up don't understand that. Look, there's there are rules that everyone says there are, and then there's rules that nobody tells you there are until you get slapped across the face with those new rules. And you are a perfect example, and Paul's a perfect example of that. That things happen, especially when egos get involved, especially yeah. when big names get involved, and and. A lot of times they're like, well, who's that? Well, that's an ant. Let's just crush that and move that out of the way. 
it, right. it does happen. It does happen. It's unfortunate. It does happen. And it happens far too often. I mean, you know, compared to a lot of what people go through, you know, at least my name is on it. And at least I did. Yeah, absolutely. You actually have one well, of the success know, stories. Having said that, I mean, you know, that's, it's just, you know, it's funny. I'll do a little segue here. So we'll move on. <laughs> but, uh, one of the things I talk about, and it's only kind of recently come to me, you know, it's interesting teaching because when you're writing, it's, you know, I assume it's like somebody who's a good tennis player or whatever. It's intuitive, right? They've been doing it so long. And then when you teach it, you have to really break it down and you're trying to explain to somebody else, you know, how, how it works. And so I like teaching because you always kind of get new insights for as long as I've been at this, I'm still like learning stuff myself, you know, there's never ending. Um, but one of the things I've recently kind of, um, concluded or at least, you know, contemplated is that, I really do believe that in a way stories are about justice because I think everyone feels like an underdog and everybody recognizes that life is not fair. It's just not. And yet, and yet there's something really deep in us, like primal, honestly, almost that wants to believe it is <laughs> that, you know, is so like, we just like expect it's going to be, but of course it's not. And that's part of the function story serve, right? Because we want to see people get what they deserve. We want to see the hero get what he deserves. We want to believe there's justice in the world. We want to believe, you know, we want to see the villain get what he deserves. And, you know, and, and that leads to the whole zeitgeist thing about superheroes now, because I think everybody feels so powerless. But, um, mm -hmm. you know. Well, I mean, I, I always use this as an analogy, because what you just said is a perfect analogy for arguably my favorite film of all time, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. You saw Shank Redemption. I always, people are like, what is about that movie that, you know, I saw that movie when I was 20 something where I, I literally probably still thought Jean-Claude Van Damme was the greatest actor of all time. So there wasn't a, a sophistication there to see a good story. But yet even my high school and college friends were liking that movie. I'm like, what is about that story? Like on paper, it's a horrible title. It's like it's not horrible, horrible worst, worst marketing, worst marketing campaign ever. I mean, it's about, you know, in the middle, it, it just, there's nothing appealing from on the surface about that film. But yet I always tell people that I think it's, I think people connect with it so much is because it's an analogy for life where you are Andy Dufresne and you feel like you, your, your life sometimes might feel like you're in prison or that it's not fair. And then you get beaten constantly for 20 years and then he finally escapes and it's just this cathartic thing. It's and I, totally I, yeah. I, yeah. I, so that's why I just thought of that when you were saying that because it was, I feel it's very much. What do you think about it? I'm assuming you like that. If not, you're dead inside. I, and no, we can't I really keep do. I, you know, <laughs> I haven't seen it as many times as you have. I remember it. I remember it very fondly. But you're absolutely right that it is a lot of people's favorite movie. Like, you mm -hmm. know, if you're on Twitter and people name things, that movie comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so it really did strike a chord with people. And, and yeah, getting back to what I was saying, I mean, I think the most powerful people in the world think of themselves as underdogs. You know, it's all relative, right? When it's they all perspective. Go theater, I think they identify with the underdog. And yeah. it's funny, you know that um, poem, and I don't know who it's by, I should know, but um, uh, into each life some rain must fall, you know that saying? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I only just recently came across the line that precedes that, which I think is really lovely, which is thy fate is the common fate of all. Into each life some rain must fall. That's awesome. It's like you're not going to be exempt. You are not going to be exempt. And it's going to suck, you know? <laughs> and so we yeah. all have our our crosses to bear, so to speak. So yeah, I, I do think stories really um, speak to that.
and the desire to believe there is some, I mean, you know, we look at, we build temples to justice, Supreme Court, whatever. We want to believe. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That, that matters, mm-hmm. even though so often it seems not to. What is the, what is the great fear that you had to overcome to finally be able to put your fingers on that typewriter or on that computer board, on that, on that computer uh, to actually start writing and put yourself out there as a writer. Cause I, th- I know a lot of people listening are either just starting out and they just have these, I'm, I'm a very big mindset guy. So I, like, it's all about your mindset and what beliefs you have about yourself and the confidence, which you spoke about. What was that thing that you finally, what was the dragon that you slayed to get to where you were? Um, you know, I don't know if I can quite put my finger on the fear, although, like I said, just sort of the general umbrella of lack of confidence, um, which I think stays with you. You know, I just think stays with writers, period, and probably most creative people, period. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, um, and, and I, but I, I do remember telling myself that I needed to accept the fact that I was not going to probably be able to write to a level that I would really respect. Right. Because even though my critical faculties have been pretty well honed, I was just beginning as a writer. So, you know, cut yourself a little bit of slack there. Right. You know, you haven't been doing this as long as you've been watching movies, you know, even people who don't do development for a living, don't analyze material for a living, you still do it, right? Mm-hmm. As a viewer, an audience member, whatever. So you've consumed a lot, but you haven't produced much, chances are, you know, depending on where you are in your life and what else you've done in terms of creative writing. So there was that. And then there was also, and again, this is a little bit more of a function of the fact that it was such a great time to sell originals, but, um, and what I was saying earlier about, you know, looking around and seeing people selling stuff and thinking, well, I know as much as they do or, you know, so I, I really did kind of start thinking, well, why not me? Why not? You know, I, I've been at this, you know? So I think it's a combination of, again, allowing yourself to be a beginner in a way. And at the same time doing your homework so that you have something to back it up, right. Mm -hmm. That you, you have educated yourself about the craft. And that's one of my pet peeves I have to say is that I think people, a lot of people, by virtue of the fact that they've seen a lot of movies, think it probably is not that hard to write one, right? But right. You know, the analogy I always use is like, well, I've driven a lot of cars, but I wouldn't attempt to build one without investigating how an engine works and aerodynamics and those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's also the function of the fact that like not everybody thinks they can play a musical instrument, but everybody can type. Everybody can, you know, they know the alphabet, they got a computer, so, you know. <laughs> But there's a little more to it than that. So yeah, you have to do your homework too. Now what, um, so we've, we've, we've gone down the rabbit hole of your career and actually just kind of talked all about the business of, of screenwriting, which is fantastic. And I think it's great, great information that doesn't get talked about often. But let's talk a little bit about the craft, just a little bit about the craft. <laughs> what are some of the most common mistakes or issues you see in first-time screenplays? Okay, so... Um, I, I'll do a little plug for myself here. I, I recently, not that recently now, but a few years ago, wrote a book called Get Your Story Straight about writing a screenplay. And it grew out of my teaching for UCLA. And uh, as I was saying earlier, in terms of like trying to figure out how to teach it, um, what I wound up doing, you know, what sort of happened was I found myself putting a lot of emphasis on structure. And I know people have a problem with that sometimes. They think of it as formulaic or whatever. Mm -hmm. But 
it's really not sorry about the sirens it's all good it's all good i'm I'm assuming you're in la so it's okay (laughs) yes um uh yeah i'm on a busy street but um so I think that's it. I think a lot of times, you know, because the screenplay, it's a marathon. It used to be 120 pages. Now it's maybe 100 to 110. But that's still a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to get lost on that sea of possibilities and and write yourself into a corner to mix my metaphors. And um, I think, again, getting back to what I was saying about justice and sort of how it's primal, I think that story structure is like I, I didn't invent it. You know, this was Aristotle. This is beginning, middle, end. This goes way back. And again, I think is sort of primal. It's kind of like you you may not know a lot about music, but you can tell if something doesn't sound right, if it's out of tune or whatever, right? You might not be able to put your finger on why. It's the same thing. It's like we almost have this intuitive sense of like how things ought to be building or moving forward or shifting, you know, as the story progresses. And I think structure is something that's often kind of invisible to the average person they don't, they're not conscious of it, but they are unconsciously aware of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's, and so, um, those are the problems I see most often, you know, that people structural. structural? Yeah, they're structural. You know, it's like it, it, you and that everything needs to have a purpose, right? It's not just random chit chat. It's not, you know, you need to be Mm -hmm. building these seems to be telling you something that you didn't already know, and they need to be taking you in a specific direction. And you probably better have a pretty good idea of where it is you want to wind up before you start, if you're going to stand any chance of getting there. So, and I also always, you know, the caveat to that is, um, you know, there are movies that don't follow those. I don't even like to call them rules principles, maybe, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, but if you want to do that, well, fantastic, you know, then, but you'll be doing it. If you, if you educate yourself about it, you'll be doing it consciously. You'll be breaking those rules consciously instead of you just don't know any better and you're just kind of stumbling <laughs> around, right? right? Like Charlie Kaufman can do that, right? Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a high wire act, you know? I mean, don't try that at home. That is that is somebody who's at the very top of their craft and a very unique sensibility and all that. For the most part, the vast, vast majority of critically and commercially successful films hit those beats. They just do. And it's funny because even movies that you think of as being, or I think that a lot of people think of as being novel and indie or whatever, you'd be amazed how much they fulfill that. I just, just recently we screened um, Little Miss Sunshine Mm -hmm. and I had them do a worksheet on it. Like, you know, what's the inciting, what's the opening image, you know, the opening image in that movie, it's so on target. It's Olive sitting there watching a pageant and it's reflected in her glasses. You know, you see that, I mean, it's so perfect and she's acting it out. So you instantly know what that movie's about or, you know, you don't know, but in hindsight, like that's what that movie was about. And um, all those beats, that inciting incident, the first plot point and, you know, the midpoint, and he's just hitting those marks in, in really inventive and character driven ways. So very much. So uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you as well, what do what does the scene always have to have in it? Like, what are the elements in the scene? Because you're right. So many times people are just like, so how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. How is that going? And they're like, just it's like, no, that's not why we watch a movie to watch real life. That's called a documentary. What should a scene do? And what elements should be in every scene in your script? God, I wish I knew. Um, but I, I will say this, you know, I, I mean, drama's conflict, right? Somebody sure. should be wanting, somebody should want something. You know, and they probably should, you know, and I wouldn't say always, but 
oftentimes be going up against somebody else who, you know, doesn't want them to have it. Right. That's kind of how you fuel it. But I think, you know, some scenes are more character oriented. They're telling you something more about the person, particularly in the first act, you know, when you're getting the lay of the land. Um, you know, some scenes are really just kind of moving the plot along. and We know who these people are by now. You know, you want to be consistent with who they are. But this is what's tricky about it, right? Because you can't really totally boil it down to a formula. No. It's, that, it's, it's the prototype every time out, right? And that's why even people like Sidney Pollack, you know, have their hits and their misses. You know, it's just, they're, they're, it's intangible in a way, you know? But um, in general, you want to be moving things forward. You don't want to be repeating yourself. And you want the story to be building as you go. And you want there to be something at stake um, that people care about or understand at least what it means to the protagonist and, and that you care about whether or not they get it. Because if you don't care, then the whole thing is moot, right? Right, right. That, that's kind of fundamental. So then what film, in your opinion, has, an, as an example, like a perfect setup, structurally speaking? Like, just like, great. Uh, you know, there's quite a number of them because I, I, I know this because I teach them in my class. Um, and I don't have anything that's really brand new, but, you know, I try to get to newer things. But Tootsie is genius. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Tootsie's like, I don't know, eight writers on that. <laughs> there was Plus a bunch Sydney. of them. Right. I mean, credited is not, but like Elaine May was uncredited on that. You know, Larry Gelbart was on that. Um, Murray Schiskel, who was the guy who came up with it with Dustin, you know, and then there were at least three or four others. I wasn't working for Sydney at the time, but, you know, I'm aware at least three or four others that, you know, he worked with plus Sydney, who never took a writing credit, but worked very closely, you know, with people developing scripts. So that's how hard it is. Right. That's mm -hmm. that, this is how challenging this craft is. You've got all those people at the top of their game and it took them years. That thing did not happen overnight. I think that thing was in development at least three or four years before. And, and when they first pitched it to Sydney, when um, Justin and I guess Francisco first pitched it to Sydney, he's like, you know, and he'd not done comedy. Right. In fact, I think that's his only comedy. And it's really a shame because it's such genius. But um, he felt like, you know, I don't really do farce. And it's great. I would go see it. You know, if Blake Edwards did it, I'd go see it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But I don't know how, I don't know a way into it. You know, a guy putting on a dress. And apparently in one of those meetings, somebody said something about, you know, how it makes a man out of Michael. Like being a woman makes a man out of Michael. And that was what Sydney latched on to thematically. That was what was interesting. interesting. And I'm assuming that is a, that's a difficult pitch. Like that at that time in history as well, it must have been a difficult pitch. I mean, yeah, Dustin, and he was a pretty big star. He was but, huge, you know, yeah. Um, and he really wanted to make it and he really wanted to play it. You know, there was something about playing that character he really sunk his teeth into. But, um, that was the thing that made it interesting for Sydney. It was sort of the larger thematic question that he could explore there. Um, but Toy Story is also masterclass in structure. Well, pretty that, much almost every one of their movies is a masterclass in structure. I mean, yeah. you could argue. Not all of them. I'm, I'm going to be unpopular here and say that I'm not as big a fan of the Pixar movies as I used to be because mm -hmm. this is just me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they're as funny as they used to be. I think they've gotten very sentimental and oh, they are. Yeah, and 
and I missed the wit, you know, and I don't know if that's just a function that most of the guys and they are guys, almost all guys. And maybe there's some women now, but who made the bulk of those movies have gotten older. Um, I don't know whether that's just easier and safer commercially speaking, you know, it is easier, I think, to sort of push those sentimental buttons than it is to be genuinely witty and inspired, especially when you're kind of working on almost like Shakespearean level where you're aiming at kids and adults and everybody in between. But I just think the original Toy Story is genius and um, and so funny and, and, and ultimately so touching. But, I mean, the idea that Buzz has this existential crisis when he realizes he's not a space ranger. I mean, that right there is really- just the best things ever in a movie. <laughs> Um, and it's fantastic too, because it's a fantastic character arc because it's, that's his epiphany. That's the moment that they're able to escape Sid was you see the light go on in his eyes. He finally realizes, you know, it's okay not to be a space ranger. You know, he's cool with being Andy's toy. And it isn't a great in the sequel where he actually runs into another Buzz Lightyear who still has that same thing. He's like, oh, you silly, silly man. I mean, I mean, yeah, but you know, the King's speech is another one that really hits those marks. Um, sideways really hits those marks. I, a lot of them. You'd be surprised. You can any really, in my opinion, pretty much any really successful commercially, critically, you know, solid movie. You can go through that checklist and identify for yourself those beats again, unless it's something very different, like like Charlie Kaufman or. Um, you know, Tarantino, uh, Tarantino stuff. Yeah, well. Yes, exactly. We've got that loopy structure and stuff, you know, which is genius too. But I think even in that, you know, you can identify inciting incidents and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. You break Pulp Fiction down and it, it follows the path, but it's, it's I'm done sure it the way it's, yeah. Oh, it's so, but Any they're literally that jump around in time that way, you mm-hmm. know, like 500 days of summer or yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're hitting those marks, but they're doing it in a way that like, it's like, it, hurt, it hurts the brain. It hurts the brain to think about how he <laughs> he he was able to structure that up. Now, yeah. I wanted to touch about, because you touched about this earlier, superhero films. It's obviously so pervasive right now in our culture. I'm a, Look, I have a, a Yoda sitting behind me. I have some superhero statues in the back. I'm a huge superhero fan. It's my, in my generation, I, I was raised with comic books and stuff, so I love it. But it is now a thing that now studios every like if you were I remember like eighty nine when Batman showed up uh, Tim Burton's Batman, everyone was like holy cow a superhero movie that was not Superman circa nineteen seventy seven. Now every week there's a new three hundred million dollar movie. What is it about the superhero genre which Spielberg also said that will eventually go out like the westerns? I'm not sh- I don't know when it'll go I out, keep but. Waiting. <laughs> it's it's gonna it's gonna be probably another thirty or forty years. I mean, they're gonna they have forty or fifty years of these characters still going, and then they can reboot it. And as long as people keep showing up, I know. they're they're gonna keep going. But what is it about that genre? What is it about? What's your opinion on the genre? And and and, and better and better question is like, is there anything that could be done with screenwriters coming up in this genre? You know, I am not the person to ask because I really. <laughs> I, I'll admit that up front. I, I'm just, I'm, I, I've tried. I really have tried because <laughs> I know that's what the kids are saying. You know what I mean? I like, I know, of course, I'm well aware of how popular these things are, mm-hmm. but they just make my eyes glaze over. Well, I how about just, Nolan? How about Nolan's work? Christopher Nolan? Yes. 
Like to, the dark, to, like the Dark Knight. No, I haven't seen it. I'll confess. So, so, so love, I'll tell you this: I love Iron Man. Okay. Because it's Robert, uh-huh. and because it's John Favreau, and I sure. love John Favreau. Uh-huh. Uh, I think John Favreau is fantastic. So there's wit in that movie. I think Bunch. that's the thing for me. I just I like things that make me laugh, and I'm bored by watching an action sequence that goes on for 20 minutes. I mean, how many times can you watch things blow up? How many times can you watch, you know, giant figures punch each other? I just don't <laughs> think it's entertaining. I right. wish I did because clearly there's, there's money to be made, you know, and um, <laughs> I, I feel a little left out in the cold in, at this point, but I, it just, they don't entertain me. I never read comic books. I'm not interested I think the original Superman is brilliant because, again, it's character, right? There's mm-hmm. wit and there's romance and there's character and there's tongue-in-cheek, you know? And maybe some of these movies have that and I've mm-hmm. missed the ones that do. But um, like you said, there's a new one every week and I just I, – I, it's not my thing. The one thing – the only movie I will suggest you do, only one I would say you watch is The Dark Knight. It is okay. arguably the godfather of, of superhero movies. And if you take the superhero element out of it, it is a, basically an amazing heist film. Just a, really? a, a heist <laughs> film mixed with a crime drama thriller. It, you know, if you take – because a lot of these, you, you take the suit off, it's done. Right, right. Christopher Nolan did such a good job that in that – the second one, not the first. The first one's great and the third one's good, but the second one is – that's the reason what? why we have 10 – that's why we have 10 Oscar nominees. And, and because yeah. of because of that movie, right, right, <laughs> it was yeah. so good. Interesting. Well, and and this is not superhero, but um, you know, it's not like I don't like. Not that anybody cares, really. Right. Like, um, like you know, darker movies. Sure. Like, really, a movie that I love actually that I was also just pointing out to my students because of the final battle in it is um, Aliens, the second oh, one so that Tim Cameron did. Which I just think is genius, you know. It's so suspenseful, but again, great characters. You know, um, Paul Reiser is is so scary in that movie. Like you can't believe he's that bad a villain, and he's frightening. And but he's normal looking. But he's, but he's normal looking. That's the thing that's so frightening about him. Oh, and we used to seeing him in comedy, and then again, Sigourney Weaver's incredible, and Bill the little Paxton. Is Bill so Paxton. Good. Oh, oh my God, Bill Paxton! I know. I know. And we could game over, man. And and I would argue, and I know I might get crap for this on uh, people listening, but I'm like, there honestly hasn't been a James Cameron film that he's made really that I don't like. I think they all have. I I mean, he's just one of the like the Abyss. I thought was. I actually never saw the Abyss. I was not a big fan of Avatar. In fact, I felt like Avatar was a bit of a ripoff of Aliens. Oh no, Avatar was a ripoff of Fern Gully. It was a ripoff of a billion other things. But it hits those he was able to hit those buttons. So yeah. everyone was a bullseye. Everyone was yeah. a bullseye. And then you mix that in with insane technology, insane right. spectacle. Exactly. And I clearly that's part of its success. And probably a lot of people who loved Avatar and never saw aliens, you know, and didn't realize the extent to which, you know, he was kind of ripping himself off. But um I just, and I also think, you know, aliens had wit. I mean, it, it just, so, you know, if you can combine all those things, it's fantastic. But to me, I just feel like so much of the superhero movies are the ones I've seen. And again, I haven't seen very many, but uh, the ones I've seen and, and or even Wonder Woman, like I heard so much about Wonder Woman. And of course I wanted to, you know, applaud it. 
but it wasn't that great. I'm sorry. It really wasn't. <laughs> I was expecting Superman and maybe the bar was too high, but in terms of like the relationship between her and I can't even remember the guy now. Um, I just really expected more of it. It looked great. She looked great, you know, but that whole third act is same old, same old, you know, I, it just, I. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I don't know. I mean, hey, listen, I'm not an easy person to go see movies with. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, I'll confess. No, whatever you do, you're that was more critical of. So, yeah. so what can uh, uh, let me just say, mm-hmm. I will say this. Mm-hmm. When something's really good, in my humble opinion, I appreciate it so much because I know how hard it is. I really do. I, I agree. When I see like I saw Green Book and I I was just like, Well, that's just great. I mean, it was just so well the car I mean it's literally two guys in a car. Yeah. I, and and it just held you and it was wonderful performances, wonderful writing, wonderful directing. It was just hitting every – I don't know if it was best picture, but it was still yeah, ar- yeah, ar- right. uh, arguably one of the best films I saw this last year. Uh, but yeah, when you find it, when you see it, if it keeps me up past my bedtime, that means it's a good movie. <laughs> yeah, and you want to see it again because you want to see yeah. how they did what they did. You know, yeah. that, That's something for what it's worth I really recommend to your listeners and, and writers is if there's something you really like mm-hmm. – Watch it and read it and watch it and read it over and over and over. I feel like it seeps into you, the rhythms of it. You know, even if you feel like you know it forwards and backwards, if you can still learn from it and, and really dissect how they're doing what they're doing. Look at how it looks on the page. Look at how, you know, it's has it made it to the screen in that form? Has it been changed? That kind of thing. Just really do the forensics. Yeah. And yeah, of course, I, I mean, I, I worked in a video store, so I saw thousands and thousands of movies and that's how I kind of got started in my business. Just watching. It was the first time in history that you could do that when the VHS came right, out. Right. That's right. Yeah, and before good. then you have to wait for the movies yeah, to come back. Yeah, and you back. couldn't get scripts. I and mean, you couldn't pause it and script. rewind yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't have Martin Scorsese talking to you. Excuse now. Come on. Oh, there's there's no- <laughs> no excuse whatsoever. Now, your book. Uh, tell me a little bit about your book. I want to. I want to get people to, if they're interested in, in it, uh, where they can get it. What's it about? Um, it's called Get Your Story Straight. It's on Amazon. Like I said, it kind of grew out of my teaching for UCLA, and in it, I really go into what I think are the important elements of a functioning screenplay. And I use a lot of examples. Like I was saying, I dissect a movie um, at the end of maybe not every chapter, but almost every chapter, including Iron Man and King's Speech and Sideways and Tootsie and Toy Story. So they're kind of all over the map. Thumb and Louise, you know, Classic. a lot of them are winning screenplays. Yeah, mm-hmm. genius. Thumb mm-hmm. and Louise so holds up. It's mm. amazing how well that movie holds up. So good. <laughs> So good. It's so good. It's so good. That sequence, I'm just going to go off on tangent here quickly. The sequence, because sometimes I talk about turnarounds, the sequence where they get stopped by the cop mm-hmm. and uh, Thelma, mm-hmm. you know, starts in that sequence as like a little girl. You know, she's like, please, 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 please don't let us get stopped. Please don't let us get stopped. You know, and then they, you know, the cop comes up to the car and then she's sort of coquettish. You know, it's like, officer, I told her to slow down. You know, and that doesn't work either. And he makes Louise get out of the car and makes her go sit in the police car. And then, you know, Thelma appears at the window with the gun and oh. starts calling the shots. Oh, you know? so like, brilliant. Shoot the radio. I mean, so you see that character arc in that sequence, you know. 
And it's just so brilliant. And it's so brilliant, too, because you believe it, right? Because mm -hmm. we know she's met Brad Pitt, and we know there's money being stolen. And we know, you know, she's desperate at this point. She's also, you know, had this little quick romance with him, and yet he's taken their money, but he's taught her how to rob. I mean, so it's not like it's not set up. You know, it, it like you don't see it coming yet at the same time. It's like, well, yeah, I could buy that she would do that. So it was such a great, such a great movie. I know we are going on a tangent, but that was a great movie. Ridley <laughs> Scott directed it and people like Ridley Scott, like when he did that movie, it was like, what? The guy who did Blade Runner and Alien is doing the movies. I know. And, and yet she, it's visually so stunning. You know, uh, it's so. It's Ridley. Yeah. So great. Anyway, so about the book. So, yeah. So that's that's what the book is. Um, but thank you for that. And then what else are you up to? What other things do you do? So I teach. I do consulting. I do private consulting. I speak, um, I which I really enjoy. I Last year, and I'm doing it again this July, I was a mentor at a retreat at this castle in France called Marowak Castle. Tough, tough job. Tough work. Tough you know, work. Tough. you know, there tough. are some perks. Um, anyway, it's Miles Copeland. I don't know if you know that music producer. He's basically it's his castle. Um, but it's fantastic. It's just a great experience. And then I'm going to do another one of those in a – monastery off Naples. In Again, the island. rough. Yeah. It's rough. Yeah. It's rough. It's rough. <laughs> this is the best part, honestly, of like being a writer. Anyway, that's in April of 2020, the Italy one. So, um, I do that and, um, I, I'm working on working on something. And I, I haven't written anything in a while for all the reasons we discussed. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I do have a story I want to tell. So Good. a lot of people have told me I should write it as a book. Um, for a number of reasons, a Hollywood's more interested in books right now than they are in original IP, IP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's really true. I mean, the manager who came to speak at my, uh, seminar or whatever at UCLA recently was saying literally even self-published books, they're more interested in than they are in an original screenplay. Like that it is... sort of doesn't matter. It's as long as it's something else first, mm -hmm. it's stunning. Um, but having said that, you know, I'm not. I've spent all these years in screenwriting. That's what comes to me naturally. And to try to write it as a novel, although the thought of like not having anybody mess with it is really appealing. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's kind of daunting to me. So uh, we'll see, but I, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, if I can write a book, cause I have a story that I had to tell and I wrote a book that just got released about a crazy story in my life as a filmmaker <laughs> And it got published and people are already asking me, when's the movie coming out? Because oh. a, fr a friend of mine wanted me to write the screenplay. I'm like, I'm not going to write the screenplay. I'm not going to go chase money for a screenplay. I'm not going to, and I can't tell the whole story in a screenplay. It's going to be so, so much more difficult. But what wow. is a lot of freedom in a novel. It is a tremendous <laughs> amount it's for, and I've written more screenplays than I've written anything else in my life. Really? It's just, just flows. It's so... It's nice. It's See, nice. I, well, I, you've encouraged me. I, I appreciate that. I just, I don't know. I don't literally like kind of know how to do it on the page. I'm so used to being spare, you know, like now yeah, I've got right, to right. head and I've got to like, you know, they said, you know, it's like, I find that really challenging. Maybe I should just like map it all out and then try. It's like, it's like speaking. Picture. It's like speaking publicly doing a 10 minute speech versus a three hour speech. <laughs> like it's much harder to do a 10 minute speech than it is to do a three hour speech because three hours you can just meander and tell stories. And so kind you of think the on. novel is like the three hour speech? Absolutely. Because I was able to go into places and tell, and tell little detailed stories and then not have to be so precious 
with yeah. the words because when you're a screenwriter, they just beat you down with like every <laughs> single word has to mean something. The description yeah. has to move the story. Or where yeah. in a novel, you could just you literally just all the chains are off and you could just write. And it is honestly for me as a you know as a screenwriter and as a writer, it is so it was so freeing. I would like, I'm just going to write a thousand words today. And I just write a thousand words and I'm going to write another thousand words today. And like, and there's no, the structure is so much more freeing. If as a writer, it feels, it feels so much better for me. I I do think that novel writers have an extremely difficult time becoming screenwriters, but I think screenwriters have a much easier time become novel writers. I had Doug Richardson, um, the screenwriter from Bad Boys and Die Hard 2 on. And Doug, he's writing, he's writing novels now. He wow. loves, he loves, he's a series of novels and he still writes screenplays, but he's like, oh man, it's just so great. Cause you could play. And what you said, it's yours. No yeah, one's going to mess with a word. <laughs> well, that's, that's the biggest thing, you know? I mean, obviously you got editors, you, you know, if you get that of far, course. you have but, but, no, but uh, yeah, no, it's a whole other yeah, that that is something that you know is I think kind of unique to screenwriting. It's like you know if you do a, if you're a painter or a poet yes. or whatever mm-hmm. you do it, and maybe people like it or they don't like it or whatever. But nobody's like, let's put a little more red on that, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Your own brush, yeah. So well, I hope yeah. I've encouraged you to write in in, you have. in, in a novel. Yeah. It's a good perspective shift for me. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all my guests, uh, what advice would you give a screenwriter one to break into the business today? You know, I, I, um, I think, I think, okay. If you happen to be a minority, there's never been a better time, well, right? Mm-hmm. So many fellowships, diversity fellowships, programs out there, particularly in television, Mm-hmm. Um, I think vast majority are in television, but they, all these, you know, platforms and networks and everything, as we discussed, have so much, you know, time to feed, you know, and, and there's unlimited with so Netflix, much. right? Oh, so there's, Netflix is just with the starting. There's so many streaming. I think there's like 2000 so shows going on right now. It's insane. Crazy, you know? And who knows how long that's going to be the case, but for the time being, there's, there's that, uh, vacuum, not vacuum, but you know, there's that market to fill and there's a lot of heat on these organizations to open doors to people who always have been kept out, basically. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, um, so if you're one of, if you fall into that category, I would absolutely encourage people to pursue those fellowships and, and, you know, do your homework on that. And that's easy to find on Google, that stuff. Um, and then there's the contests, you know, um, nickel, you know, there's a handful that I think really sort of matter. Nickel is one Austin. film festival, probably final draft. You know, there might be a couple more that I'm not thinking of right now, but, um, that's kind of a way to get noticed, you know? And then, you know, the other thing is, and this is the trick, right? It's like, go do your own little thing. So there's this democratization of the technology, right? But at the same time, there's so much clutter out there. Mm-hmm. So that's hard to rise above. Um, but, you know, I always say, and, and I always add that, you know, sometimes I wish this weren't the case when my work doesn't seem to catch fire, you know. But um, I really do believe if you write something good enough, and that bar is very, very high. But if you do, it will get noticed, 
people will talk about it. They will talk to their friends about it and it will spread and you will get somewhere with it. But, you know, Michael Arantino, who wrote Little Miss Sunshine, um, there's a great clip of video of him online, if people are interested, where he talks about sort of his inspiration for that movie and um, the origins of it. And he's really lovely. But one of the things he talks about is how he was a reader before he became a writer. Mm-hmm. I think he from Matthew Broderick. And, and he says, I believe it's in that clip, where he says, you know, that I realize the talent is kind of a wash in B minus to B plus scripts. And that a lot of them just didn't ultimately fully deliver, particularly in the end. And he, it was very important to him that that ending on Little Miss Sunshine really said something. Oh, it did. And yeah, you know, like it went away you didn't expect and yet it made perfect sense and it tied everything together thematically and, um, you know, story-wise and everything. So um, I think that's true. You know, I think to, to, to write a B script, it's probably not going to get you that far. But if you can either, you know, whether it's in the conception of the idea that's so unique that it's like Jurassic Park or something, you know, that it just really is just almost sells itself that way or your execution is really so masterful. And and that is hard. That's really hard. And you have and it doesn't happen in one or two drafts. You know, you have to really be willing to keep at it. Now, what can you tell me what book had the biggest impact on your life or career? I wish you'd ask me these questions about what book had the biggest impact. Um, you know, I, I, I can't think of one in particular. There's a book I really, really love. I don't know that it had the biggest impact on me, but it's called West with the Night. Um, it's actually set in Africa, and people wanted Sidney to make it after he did Out of Africa. And it's a true story, too, but he'd already done Out of Africa. So. Sure. Um, he wasn't going to go back there. But uh, that's a brilliant, brilliant book written by a woman who was a pilot, in a bush pilot at the same era of Isaac Dennison in Africa. Um, but... What I will say is uh, after I quit business school and was thinking of going to law school, um, when I was in college, I didn't take any – well, I took one literature class, and I hated it because they made us read books I didn't like, and so – which is kind of like being forced to eat food you don't want to eat, you know, mm-hmm. and – uh, irony of ironies, that's what my living became, was reading <laughs> reading stuff I didn't want to read, reading screenplays. Um, but um, for whatever reason, I just decided when I got out that I wanted to have a better understanding of classic literature. And so I did my own little self, you know, in, self-directed course, I guess, um, of reading the classics sort of right after I got out of college. So I read, because I wanted to know what people talked about Moby Dick or they talked about Grapes of Wrath or, they, or you know, Jane Austen or whoever, Tolstoy, sure. you know. I wanted some familiarity with that. I don't honestly really even know why, but I did. And what I learned from that was, it just taught me a lot about the universality of human nature. You know, like at the time, like, you know, it was still the Soviet Union and they were like the big red menace and I knew nothing about Soviet. And then I read Tolstoy and it's like, oh, but they're just like people. (laughs) Right, right. Um, I mean, obviously he was pre-Soviet Union, but you know what I'm saying? Like that this Russian guy, you know, from the 1800s, right? He's 1800s, I believe, um, could speak to me you know, in the 20th century was, was in, astonishing to me, but he really did. And that's, that's Shakespeare, right? That's, that's the, things don't change that much. And so I think collectively that experience really, um, it gave me a lot. And I think it also gave me kind of confidence in my ability as a reader. And that was, you know. Very good. 
Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business <laughs> or in life? Uh, wow. When am I still learning? Um, you know, it, it, I, I'll say this. It gets back a little bit to what we're talking about, justice, you know. And um, you stay in this business long enough, some really shitty stuff is going to happen to you. It's just going to. And like I said, nobody is immune. And it's ugly. It is, it is uglier than you can possibly imagine, than I could have possibly imagined. Um, the other side of that coin is it can be incredibly exciting and incredibly fun. And I got to go to Italy and hang out with Robert Downey Jr. You know what I mean? It's like, but it runs the gamut. But I do remember having a point a long time ago in my life where I thought, you know, you either need to just accept that this is the nature of the game, you know, this is the nature of the beast, or you need to get out because you are not going to change this. And <laughs> no. so, yeah, you're not. Now, having said that, I still have difficulty with that. And, and I will say in the wake of the Me Too stuff, part of me is like, hats off, you know, for your collectively for those women collectively going no you know what it's not okay and we are going to try to change it and you know maybe they will in the long run maybe they won't i don't know but i i really give them credit for having finally said no we're not just going to say that's how it works that's how the business is no. you know there's nothing we can do so um it, 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 you have to i think almost have like a duality you know where it's like okay this is the way it is and you do your best to cope with it and, and just keep your head down, you know, do your work. That in the end, I think is your salvation is do your work, do the best you can and, and strive as you do that. Cause this is so critical to be inspired by the work that you admire and the work you love and really seek that out because that's what feeds you. And the toughest question of all three of your favorite films of all time. Oh my goodness. See, now this is so hard. Um, well, I would put Thelma and Louise up there. Okay. I really would. I love that movie. Um, gosh, let me think here for a minute. I mean, there's little movies that I love. I don't know if I put them in my all time, but they just touch me like Il Pustino. I love Il Pustino. Oh, I love Il Pustino. It's beautiful. It's just so beautiful. It's beautiful. And, it's, and it's, it's just so quirky and sweet and beautiful. Um, I really like Pulp Fiction. Oh, I love I, Pulp Fiction. And I, and I and yeah, so and and yeah, Butch Cassidy maybe. I love old Paul Newman. Yeah. Anything Goldman. Oh. I cheated. Yeah, and anything really, truly. Princess I mean, Bride. I mean. Princess Bride. Misery. I mean, come on. Yeah. All the presidents and all of them. He's just genius, and they all hold up so well. And where can people find you in, in the work you're doing? Uh, I, they can go to my website, which is just dianedrake.com and they can reach me there. Very cool. Well, Diane, it has been an amazing conversation. I'm, I'm so glad it went into places I wasn't expecting, which I love, uh, which is great. And you really, uh, dropped some knowledge bombs on the tribe today about the realities of being in this business and, uh, hopefully some inspiration and some uh, cautionary tales as well. So thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. It was really fun. I want to thank Diane for being so honest and so straightforward with her experiences, her knowledge bombs, uh, all the information that she gave us in this episode. I really, really appreciate it. So Diane, thank you. Thank you so much. 
for coming by and dropping those knowledge bombs on the tribe. If you want to get any information about Diane, her consulting, her books, uh, links to her movies, please head over to the show notes at IndieFilmWatcher.com forward slash six five six. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.